Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. Welcome back to the eighth episode of the Yikes Podcast, the podcast where we talk all about environmental justice, climate activism, human rights, refugee rights, allyship, and much more. I'm Michaela Loach, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Rebecca, I'm the other cause. <laughs> That's usually how it works. Um, <laughs> and today's episode is with the wonderful Wawa Gatheru. Wawa is a writer and environmental justice activist based in the US. She is also a Rhodes Scholar. And in this episode, she shares her insights being a black woman in the environmental justice movement, in academic spaces, and so much more. Um, We talk about white supremacy in the climate movement, gatekeeping in academia, and so many other things. Um, I really loved having this conversation, Mm -hmm. and we are really excited for you to hear more from Wawa, because she's amazing. Um, So enjoy this episode. In this podcast, we try and make these conversations as accessible as possible, as we appreciate that um, for many, a barrier to activism and getting involved in a lot of these um, issues is kind of feeling like they don't know what's going on. I would always encourage people that if you don't know what we're talking about, a certain term or something, always have a Google. But um, a key term in this episode that um, we'll introduce and define a little bit is we talk a bit about abolition and abolitionists. So um, abolition itself, its root is from the times of chattel slavery and um, abolitionists in the past were people who were advocating for the end of slavery. In modern day, um, abolition movements still exist um, and in, they kind of are responding to modern day slavery, so mass incarceration um, through like the prison industrial complex, um, through the policing of communities, through the police, um, and trying to kind of end these different oppressive systems by the state um, and create alternatives and kind of make these oppressive systems obsolete as well. Um, If you want to read a bit more about prison abolition or prison obsolescence, then Angela Davis has a book called Are Prisons Obsolete, which I can really recommend. And yeah, I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, So wow, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. How are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm okay, yeah. (laughs) It's a weird time, I think, for everyone. Mm. Um, But if people haven't read it, I don't know what you've been doing, but um, while I wrote an amazing article um, for Vice talking about um, kind of like how, I I don't want to speak for you all, but like (laughs) from what I got from it, there's a lot of um, how academia within um, environmentalism and um, conservation spaces has like been this very white dominated space for so long even though the impacts of the climate crisis are felt by um by pop communities um so do you want to talk a little bit about um that article about your work um absolutely so i actually have never publicly released any of my writing so i often like get through a lot of my frustrations through writing so i've written about this a lot privately in my journal Um, But just given the conversations that are happening right now with all the police murder of Black folks in the the United States and then also just the anti-Blackness that's so pervasive everywhere, I I was getting really frustrated in kind of witnessing um, how many environmental organizations across the movement weren't really connecting the dots with the issues that were inherent to our movement in general. So I've seen a lot of statements like virtue signaling of we hear you, we see you, we stand with you. 
And often those statements um, are are just statements. And um, yeah. I, I was just getting frustrated that there wasn't a lot of depth in those conversations, a lot of depth mm-hmm. in the fact that mm-hmm. me as an emerging environmental scholar has have felt like very isolated, um, even just as an early career person. And it's something that I know I'm going to continue to go through. Um, and I hope that I don't, but that's just been like the trajectory that I've seen. And I really wanted to hopefully start a conversation around that, especially since right now we're having all these young people striking. And when a lot of them end up deciding to perhaps study these issues, say at university or even in high school, the curriculum certainly doesn't address the things that got them in the movement um, in the first place. And that could be a way for people to leave. And that's been a part where I've almost left. So I really didn't want to see that continue to happen. I wanted to address that. Mm. Yeah. So um, you're and you're an, would you call yourself an academic? Is that what you'd call yourself? Um, I would say I'm a budding academic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like there academia can be a bit a lot elitist um, when we think mm. about like access. So there aren't a lot of black people that are that are able to access, I guess, um, the ivory tower of academia. And certainly we haven't really been able to assess our own issues in regards to the environmental field as often as mm-hmm. other folks. Um, so I kind of shy away from that. I would like to say I'm, I want to be a scholar activist, someone that uses their academic mm-hmm. pursuits to um, support like BIPOC people that are working on the ground and doing community organizing in that way. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself an academic just yet. Okay. Yeah, because one thing that I've I was really had really wondered, like when looking at your work, is like how have you found kind of bridging that gap that seems to kind of exist between academia and activism, and like trying to make those two worlds exist together. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, and you know, I feel as though the reason why I feel like I'm kind of traversing between both worlds, and will probably always do that, is because mm-hmm. I I feel like there wasn't really a Base for me in academia. So for me, like going to college, I was told that I needed to do X, Y, Z and focus on publishing and just, you know, writing mm-hmm. articles and like being really siloed in that. And it just felt so deviated from the lived experiences that my own family is going through, my close friends. So I just felt like there's a lot of power that exists in academia and it can be used for good and it has been used for good but in regards to really supporting BIPOC folks and specifically black people in environmental scholarship there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah I think from from your article in Vice like you also mentioned like how little black people you saw in the spaces or in environmental uh, like scholar or academia fields um And I also studied or am studying environmental related things. And it really struck me like in my undergrad, um, I don't remember any of my professors um, being a black, indigenous or person of color. Um, and they are also obviously like they, their sustainability was very like technique focused rather than, you know, like sustainability having like justice um, or the social component at the heart. And I found that it's very interesting, like how like sustainability in so many, even when we look at like the future projections of sustainability, it's very much, yeah, upholding like 
white views and like replacing conservationism on certain communities rather than, you know, I guess there's a question of like sustainability for who and by whom. And mm -hmm. I wonder if like, yeah, if academia is always led by a certain like, group of people um, and yeah, and that like silencing of other voices, whether that's an academic spaces or even like how exclusive academia really is. Um, mm. I wonder if that resonates with you and what you have experienced. Yeah, it absolutely does. And you know, it's interesting. In in my article, I was trying to make some some connections between the way that you know scholarship influences every other part of the movement, right? So, for spe specifically, right with climate change, you still have people um, that believe that climate change is a hoax. They say that climate change isn't really happening. So I see what ends up happening specifically in this movement in the academic space is people feel like, okay, we have to um, silo ourselves to numbers and graphs and facts in that way. Science being this, right? And being, you know, showing everyone these numbers and decimals and like being very particular and what ends up happening with that. And, and I won't say that that's not important because it absolutely is. That's the reason why 97% of scientists say climate change is happening. But when you begin to just only focus on that, you lose out on the story of climate change and how emotional it is. I've really um, found a lot of Solace, and I'm sure you've heard of her, Mary Annalise Hegler's work in regards to like bringing back, or not even bringing back, but just really centering the emotionality of climate change. I feel like that's also missing from scholarship mm. uh, because mm. like climate change is happening right now. People are going through with their lived experiences, drought. For instance, my family is from Kenya. And when my family, my parents specifically, moved to the States, they moved to the States so that their future kids could go to college one day. But now something that's driving a lot of my family members in Kenya now to leave is the drought because they come from a long line of farmers on both sides. So even the how immediate it's happening um, in so many different places, there's this disconnect where some people are only validating it as numbers and some people only know it in a lived experience. And there, there needs to be a space to bring that together. But also the focus on numbers and decimals is like a very white supremacist way of conceptualizing what science is because, right, the traditional eco ecological knowledge is also a valid science and yet that's being left out mm. and almost um I find in academia especially around um the climate crisis and when it does get reduced to numbers and those kind of things and graphs um and almost the idea that um in order for something to be valued and important and um respected it kind of has to be quote-unquote objective but objectivity was designed by a certain set of people like academia itself and what 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 is good research and what is bad research and what is respectable and what is um the highest level all of that has been designed and created from this kind of white gaze and from this white perspective um and this almost like divorcing of emotion from that it is quite a white thing and it's quite uh it's a very problematic thing but quite an oppressive thing because it means that the people who like care about these issues the most because it's affecting them and their communities in a very visceral and emotional way are almost being told that their way of responding to it um like isn't the right way because it's, it's almost like it's not the white way <laughs> of responding to it so like the ways in which some different ways of knowledge aren't respected in the same way um and the ways in which like 
I don't know a lot of um, the ways of doing research or understanding things from indigenous communities like isn't quote unquote respected in academia um, is just a way of gatekeeping and that can be really problematic. Absolutely. The gatekeeping problem is crucial, crucial to this conversation because it makes sense when you think about it, when right, the whole conversations that are say happening right now with statues and names of of you know, racist colonialists being called to be pulled down. Um, and we're seeing people actually taking their own agency and bringing them down themselves. The issue is, right, is people, um, some people might not even see them as racist. They say, hey, this is my history. Why are you trying to take away my history? I think this mm. is an issue that I find in the environmental sphere is, right, when I say that the founding fathers, John Muir, Madison Grant, um, Hero, Teddy Roosevelt, when I say that these people do not represent me, nor does their conceptions of nature and wilderness encompass, or even, or they, they shouldn't even be seen as the beginning of the environmental movement. When I, mm. when I, when I see that that is not correct, people sometimes get defensive and they say, well, that's history. You can't change that. It's not that that isn't history. It is. But why is it that certain histories are uplifted more than others? Why is exactly. it that there are only white men that are seen as being the fundamental thought leaders of the environmental movement when the mm-hmm. land that they were conceptualizing was already land that was lived on by other people. Mm-hmm. Why is that line being drawn there? And that's a conversation that needs to be had. It's not about erasing history. It's the fact that history has erased others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And even the fact that like, I, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these people like, describe their experience and like going into nature where in I mean in even so many languages apart from like English like there doesn't even exist the like separation between like for example humans and nature like it's just you know being part of the land being part of of yeah of the earth whereas like in English obviously it's very separate and yeah like the idea that um, certain people get to define what, for example, like environmentalism is or what science is. And even like what you mentioned earlier was like the, um, the emotions in climate change. Um, it's such a, yeah, it's also a very capitalist thing of like, um, only when numbers, where only when numbers exist or for example, the loss or, um, you know, even temperature rise, like, um, that only then if like numbers on a paper in a certain format is accepted mm. and is like, I think McKenna and I talked about this before in an episode where, um, you know, white people didn't, didn't like invent environmentalism. They didn't invent like climate mm. activism even like for so many people that is a lived experience and they might not, you know, go to the London parliament to um to sign a petition or like you know glue themselves somewhere but for so many people it is a lived experience and they have those experiences because of the white settlers because of exploitation um and colonialism and so many different factors so for white people to claim that movement now is quite yeah the audacity is quite high <laughs> Hi everyone, Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, This podcast is made possible thanks to all of our patrons, so we really want to say thank you to them. And Patreon is really important to us as we really want this space to be owned by our listeners. Um, A lot of things we talk about and the nature of the conversations that we have don't really match well with a lot of advertising platforms um, or 
kind of companies, which means that um, Patreon is kind of how we can keep this podcast going and it's really, really important to us. So we would really, really, really love if you'd consider becoming a Patreon. There are extra bonus episodes on Patreon. There's like, you can get help downloads with the music. You can hear Finn, our producer, actually speak on the Patreon, which is very exciting. We'll be doing like, like Q&As and there'll be lots of different content on there. So we'd really, really love um, if you came along and joined us over on Patreon. That's um, where we have lots of extra fun stuff and also just helps this happen. And if you've learned anything from this podcast or from me or Joe and you'd like to like feed back into our work, um, Patreon's the best way to do that. Um, and we'd be really, really grateful if you could sign up for that. So um, our Patreon is the Yikes Podcast and you can find that in the show notes. And thank you so much for supporting us. And I hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you over on Patreon. Wawa, do you find that your, do you think that you kind of mentioned it before, but like that your connection to Kenya and your family that live there, um, do you find that that kind of has brought you into the environmental movement more? Has that inspired you? It's interesting because um, I guess one of the only positives of, of this moment right now in regards to being back home when I wasn't really expecting to is I've had a lot of time to think, but also time to talk to my family about things I haven't. So it's interesting because I I always felt like I needed to have like an environmental story that made sense. Um, maybe y'all could could um, relate to this, but oftentimes people say, when did you start caring about the environment? And I was always really troubled by this because I feel like it's so innate. Like, of course, I care about the environment. And looking back, of course, I care about a climate future that involves black people of course that that's a that's a part of loving people in my life that's a part of loving myself but you know the more I was asked that question I was like okay okay um I first have my experience with the physical environment through growing food through a garden with my mom and grandmother which I really wasn't growing anything I was like three and four so it's more of a nuisance but (laughs) that was the first time that I was you know with them in in the soil and they would basically grow that food to create the Kenyan cuisine that I love to this day. And um, now that I'm older, I've been able to um, conceptualize what my climate story really is outside of the confines of kind of feeling pressure to have this like very tangible physical experience with the environment. For me, it was that. It was interacting with the soil, but it, it, it that wasn't it. There are so many other layers. I remain in this movement not because of that I remain in this movement because I, I'm honestly terrified of what climate policies and our movement would look like as a movement that is actually the one saddled with with solving this crisis. What would happen if we don't center Black lives in other BIPOC communities? Mm. And it's happening, and it frustrates me, and it's dangerous, and that's what centers me. So it's kind of like this active. Um, yikes moment that I have of like oh my goodness like why is it that as a movement I'm still seeing people having to be educated on why you know black lives matter is central to environmental mm-hmm. issues it, it just is so real to me because that's just my life that's my essence and mm-hmm. that's kind of what keeps me in it but again as I begin to unpack my climate story I can't take away the generational trauma that happens with having your 
your your livelihood grounded in this relationship with the land. And now within my lifetime, that is is being taken away from us. And mm, mm. um, what you said about like the needing uh, that well, our need to center like Black Lives in the Climate Movement and how important that is. Um, how do you feel about everything that's been going on at the moment and the fact that people seem to suddenly be waking up to this fact, to this fact that's obviously been so integral, um, I'm sure to both of us, like being black women in this movement. Um, like how's, how's that made you feel just with everything that's going on? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, Big question. It's a bit, it's a bit dis- disorienting, I'd say. Um, because I feel like there were, there are some like real timelines, right? Because as a black person that has grown up in the United States in rural Connecticut as the only black family, my blackness has quite literally been at the center of my life the entire time. And I would say every black person as well. Um, but especially growing up in a place where macroaggressions were a part of my everyday experiences. Mm. So I've had to learn to navigate this world, this country. Um, but also I did spend some time abroad. I, I used to live in Thailand, which is a whole nother story, but there I was very black too, and still dealt with anti-black racism. But I mean this to say I've at 21 years old, have learned to somewhat cope with this reality of the fact that anti-Black racism can and often does interject itself into my everyday life. And it's like this fight that some people can't see, but I'm constantly there. So to suddenly have the lights turned on and everyone either beginning to understand or showing that they want to understand I felt like I haven't really had a lot of time to cope with it. I didn't have enough time to be like, oh, wait, you can kind of begin to see what I've been going through. It's been really disorienting. And also on top of that, I mean, there's this analogy. Sorry if I'm rambling, but there's this analogy that that I, I discussed with one of my friends the other day where it's like, you know, that meme of the dog that's in like a burning house and it's saying everything's fine. But, oh yeah, 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 no idea. Yeah, but like, yeah. <laughs> fine. Yeah. I feel, I feel like being black in America and being black in general. But I'm speaking from my lived experiences. Mm. It's, it's that experience, and and mm. I, I learned to exist with fire all around me, but I know not to touch it. Right. And suddenly, and, and that's racism. Right. I know not to touch mm-hmm. it. I know not to necessarily call it out by its name every single time mm-hmm. because it'll burn me and not it mm-hmm. in being this like, you know, just this fire. But like people, people don't want to hear that they're like being racist towards you. No one wants to be confronted with their racism and oftentimes if you do spring it up there's sometimes retaliation sometimes it keeps you from being able to do certain things so suddenly people are like you can touch it you can you can tell me what you, you can tell me exactly and exactly what's been going on and I and I've been really hesitant about that because also the agency that I've been seeing happening is this movement or moment which I hope isn't a moment it wasn't necessarily um, enacted by other Black people, because we've always been talking about this. We have these conversations all the time, but it's mm. been non-Black folks that have said, you can touch the fire. But my issue is, and where mm. I get the anxious is, when is it, it's not going to be up to me when that fire is going to burn me again. That's going to be up to other people. So it's almost a mm. trust, and it's hard to believe in that trust completely when 
I've been conditioned my entire life not to touch it. Mm. And I think something that I've definitely found quite difficult is like, yeah, I, what you're saying about seeing other people just now touching it very carefree, like in a very carefree way, like um, seeing the kind of people that made me scared to talk about racism before being the ones who are, who are able to talk about it with such freedom. Um, and even like the gatekeeping that's existing kind of around that and how kind of frustrating it is that like even within the environmental movement, a lot of um, organizations that we've, a lot of us have been like screaming at for a while saying like, hey, racism is a real issue and we need to be intersectional and we need to include anti-racism work in our climate work. Um, and we've been saying that for so long and a lot of us experienced um, pushback because of that. And then now that it's, now that almost white people have said it's okay to talk about it, now it's like, oh no, like, of course we, of course climate justice is important. Of course racial injustice is important. And it is this, it, it, I can understand what you mean about being really conflicting and like, quite uncomfortable and disorientating is definitely a really good way that you described it. And also, I suppose, like, in, in the environmental movement, like you said earlier, like, how, you know, being in the environment is, or, like, being part of that space is, like, a way to love yourself. And, like, in, in a space where you, you know, that's your passion or, like, wherever, in whatever space we are, where that's our hobby, our activity, where we feel comfortable, obviously, we want to yeah, we truly want to feel comfortable. So for you also in the environmentalist like space to, yeah, have to experience racism because obviously racism does exist everywhere, but that now, you know, that you, it's almost like you have to make a, you may have to make the case for your experiences to be accepted and for white people to sign off that, oh yes, like we should be talking about this in the environmental space and, um, I think Patty um, on Instagram like did a while ago a post about like whiteness in the like whiteness in the outdoors, um, which I think a lot of people were, especially obviously like white outdoor folk were like really shocked by of like oh what like only white people are pictured in the outdoors and like um, so yeah I think that was when you said that earlier about like how, you know, being outdoors or something is a part of like loving yourself. And um, that was really significant. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up that Instagram post. I don't believe I saw it, but um, I've been hearing and kind of seeing this general conversation and all the different facets that is um, the environmental movement, right? Because it's so multifaceted, but a lot of folks in, in the outdoor recreation scene being very surprised and you know, it's interesting to me because um, I, I'm so happy that, like, I guess the scales are falling from people's eyes and they're seeing um, what mm. felt very obvious to me. But it's interesting because um, two summers ago, summer of 2018, um, I was a part of a summer program, which is for, like, emerging environmental scholars and um, oriented towards BIPOC folks so that we have a community because we often don't at our universities. And we spent the summer assessing um, the demographics in regards to the visitation 
at um, the seashore of a really popular national park in California. And mm. the data that we were using was based off of the general national data that said 7% of mm. national park visitation is Black. And then I don't know the specific names for the different racial categories, but overall, BIPOC folks were very low in regards to overall representation opposed to white folks. And in our research, it demonstrated that. And it just felt very obvious for us because we not only looked at visitation of folks coming in and talking to them, but also what was represented in the um, posters that were up in the folks that were working at the National Park Center, in the photographs online um, regarding it. And it just felt very obvious to me. I I can count on my hands how many times um, on two fingers, how many times I've seen specifically a black wow. woman represented mm-hmm. in an outdoor recreation advertisement. And it, I literally like had to stop and roll mm-hmm. back up. And I was like, excuse me, mm-hmm. look at her dough. But, you yeah. know, <laughs> if yeah. I have to do that, I just, I'm like, wow, did people really not see this before? And mm-hmm. in some ways, this this great reckoning is exciting. And in other ways, it's mm-hmm. scary because I'm like, what else aren't people seeing? Because I I don't know if I'm seeing things that other people aren't. But what's great is, right, I feel like there's platforms that weren't readily accessible for us to talk about these things that are open to this. But on top of that, I also don't want people to assume, especially in the environmental field, that all that Black and BIPOC folk are good at is talking about race in regards to this. Mm. Like we're just explaining our lived experiences. For for mm. us, it's not talking about race. Where I'm I'm just talking about myself, the way that everyone else is. But people don't see that's talking about for race because that's your lived experiences. Mm. There are so many different ways to interact with this movement, and it's often tiring to feel stunted by being in this repetition of just explaining why it's wrong for you not to be there. Mm. And then the other people, I'm ranting, but this is especially Mm. difficult in the classroom, right? Because I feel like I don't really have a specialty yet because I've been reactionary in so many ways. So much of the work that I've done thus Mm. far has been in addressing the erasure of black people. And in that, there are other things maybe I would have wanted to research, you know, maybe I wanted mm. to go an X place and do some work on this or this, but I wasn't able, I didn't have the privilege of that. And other people can just mm. be a student and learn and, and love um, being curious. I, I haven't gotten that privilege and I want for, you know, emerging folks, even if they go down the academia track or, or just being in the field, like in the environmental movement, that they can just be. So um, looking forward, what are some of the things you really want to, like other people, particularly uh, like white and generally other privileged people um, see do that would enable you to get, yeah, I guess like to, to, for you and other people to explore, you know, just being and uh, exploring the passions rather than um, having to, yeah, fight, fight battles that you shouldn't be, like, you shouldn't have to fight. 
I think um, some the reason why I meditate so much on history is because, right, I feel like right now a lot of people are, are kind of, right, you have the hashtag Amplify Black Voices, and that is so central. I mean, I would have never thought that I'd write for Vice. Like, I, <laughs> that was totally not something I thought would happen. And um, however, the things that I'm talking about are not new. There have been Black scholars that have been doing this work, Dr. Dorcia Taylor has dedicated her life to actually assessing the barriers that exist for BIPOC folks in the environmental mm. space. Almost all of the numbers that I have to quantify in that article and the numbers that have actually impacted my life, because as a researcher, the program that I was talking about for BIPOC environmentalists, it was through that research that helps, quote unquote, prove that this was an issue, that they were able to get funding to create that very program. No, that's our, she's a, she's a scholar activist that, right, I, I have her as an inspiration of, well, your research can actually create change that supports um, folks that are emerging. But I think what's really, really important is to realize that it's not enough just to, to amplify the voices that are talking right now, because we have been learning from other people that haven't had a platform, and that information is so accessible, and it's it's also about reframing history. It's about going beyond what we've been spoon fed, and it's all of us have been spoon fed, and it's a process actually for all of us, um, right? It's it's to read um, right when we talk about the climate strikes right now. Something that was really troubling for me even now is I remember being taught um, by 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 um, one of my aunts when I was younger about the Birmingham Crusades which is essentially black students walking out from school in the ni- in 1962 in support of black lives mm-hmm. and it was the largest school strikes in the nation's history yet when mm-hmm. we talk about the school strikes that are happening right now and i think this is done intentionally not in regards to racial division but more so in a way to mystify activism to make it seem mm-hmm. like it's just some, you know, angry kids doing X, Y, Z, when really people have always used activism as a way to fight for a better future. But making those connections, like this is not new. Young people have literally walked out of class before for their their lives. And once you start making those connections, once you start demystifying these things, once you realize that it's not new, it becomes a lot less scary because it's scary because it feels new. It's scary because it feels uncertain and foreign, but it's not. And that's what we all can do in regards to diving back into those resources, but also finding connections that aren't always made for us. The other day, I was talking to someone yesterday, actually, and they were like, right now in this moment, who are you looking towards for inspiration? And what I said surprised them, because I said the people that I'm looking towards for inspiration right now aren't necessarily like climate scientists aren't necessarily people that are explicitly in the field, people that would necessarily call themselves environmentalists. I'm looking at abolitionists. I'm looking at people that are looking at formulating a future grounded in justice. That's a very language that the environmental movement aspires to. Why isn't it that we find abolitionists not only as um, allies, but people that are fundamentally invested in the same thing that we are. If we are truly invested in a just, like a just climate future, over policing is not 
encompassed in that. And Mm -hmm. right when you ask people, Mm -hmm. what does abolition look like for you? What does a just future look like for you? People aren't going to tell you that they want to experience food apartheid. People aren't going to tell you they want to choke on their air. People don't want their children having lead contamination and having um, health impacts that are impacting the way that people, their their children are actually in inception. You just did anyone else read that New York Times article talking about how climate change is impacting Black women um, in regards to their babies? we need to be making those connections and those connections aren't new. Um, and again, another ramble, but right. Abolition in, in and of itself, I'm making those connections, not out of curiosity of this moment, but because when's the last time I'm again, I'm being us centric, but when's the last time, at least in the United States, where you saw this huge tectonic economic shift. It was after mm. slavery, slavery and actually folks that were enslaved was the United States greatest financial assets. So in abolishing slavery, we had to transition to something totally new. Unfortunately, that transition led to the Industrial Revolution and the laid the foreground for the fossil fuel industry. But it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. See, I see that as mm. as something to learn from, right? Mm. If we as a climate movement just say we want a future, we could fall back in the same trap of transitioning into another unjust system Mm. or abolishment of slavery. The unjust system that emerged was the fossil fuel industry by means of the industrial revolution, but also slavery transformed into a mass incarceration system. Mm. We we don't have time to make those mistakes again. We have to learn from the past and realize that we have to be encompassing in the way that we talk about justice. Mm. Woo. <laughs> yeah and I mean I think so many people yeah like you said forget history and all that yeah like really gave me the chills when you were talking about how we can learn so much from the history that is actively suppressed obviously by white supremacists but I remember a quote uh, by Malcolm X saying um, revolution is based on land and la- land is the basis of all independence um, land is the basis of freedom justice and equality and I mean, the the U.S. has a very different history around land injustices than the U.K. where we are based. But, um, you know, land access or the lack of that and like the U.S. has a really, really big history around that. And like slavery was so much around like taking away land and using land as a tool to oppress um, black folk and indigenous folk and people of color. And yeah, so, yeah. The point you made is, um, yeah, it's really inspiring and actually gives a lot of hope, as sad as it is, obviously. But um, yeah, learning from those from those lessons and continuing that fight. Mm. Like, um, I think in so many ways, when we box people into boxes of what type of activist they are, that can mean that we forget how all of these social justice issues intersect. So, what you were saying about how like abolitionists are so essential um, to climate justice. Like when people make out that we're diluting, quote unquote, diluting the movement by introducing racial, in- like racial justice or migrant rights or all these other things into it. Um, I don't like, they just aren't really <laughs> recognizing that all of these issues intersect and that um, a migrant rights activist is a climate justice activist in their own right. And an abolitionist is a climate justice activist in their own right. 
And if all of these systems are interconnected mm. and if all of these oppressive systems are interconnected and if, if also like capitalism and white supremacy are, are at the heart and are the foundations for a lot of these oppressive systems, um, we just can't divorce them from each other and we can't make out that the work of an abolitionist doesn't also help us create climate justice. We can't w- make out that the work of someone who works in, in land justice or someone who works in in food justice or these different issues, like we can't make out that they aren't also doing work for climate mm. justice. Exactly. And Audre Lorde once said, um, we, you know, we don't live single issue lives. And what's interesting about this is I think what when people ask, you know, where do you bring how can you center hope in like a very dire mm. future? Um, it's the fact that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's all about relearning and unlearning. And mm. what's really interesting about that is there I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for realizing how and in in our ability to make connections because by nature of us being people we are all so intersectional and multifaceted every single person so we can make sense of that within the confines of us as individuals it's extending that imagination and that's where the argument also for centering BIPOC folks especially in this movement also extends itself because right I can speak for myself and my lived experiences I've had to literally from from when I was younger I intentionally never I, I never call myself an environmentalist I, of course, care, and I believe everyone cares, but I just didn't see myself represented and didn't really feel that welcome Mm. in conventional environmental spaces, so I didn't. Me calling myself an environmentalist now is after taking time to reframe that for myself, and I feel like that is something that a lot of BIPOC people in this movement have had to do, is figure Mm. out where their lives fit in, and in doing that, that is a form of reimagination, and that in itself should be a lens that people should look towards, not just amplifying voices for the sake of amplifying voices for a movement but amplifying to learn on what does it mean to reframe and that is a skill that is just so fundamental and really lays the seeds for what this movement could be Mm. well I think that is a really wonderful um way to end this episode with like Mm. what people should be thinking about and reframing and and finding hope in the midst of that um because those are so also such important things that we um, could all be applying to this movement so much more into our own lives and um, in order to create new systems. Um, while we've absolutely loved having you on the podcast, thank you so much um, for talking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Y'all are just so phenomenal. Thank you so much for inviting oh. me. Oh. Um, and if people would like to um, like hear more from you, um, if, where, where could they find you? On Twitter, I'm just Wawa Githero no spaces or anything and then on instagram on wawa underscore Cathero. thank you so much all of you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode um of the yikes podcast this is produced by finley moat i am michaela loach i'm one of your hosts and you can find me on instagram and i'm joe becker and you can find me as trees and peas on instagram and follow the podcast at the yikes podcast um, for more updates and we will see you very soon for a new episode